Hey guys, it's JM here, and we are still working on our audio issues with the Roots Chris study, so those of you that are following along on the podcast, bear with us. Um, We should hopefully by next week have all this cleared up, but in the meantime, you get another recap here back at the Disciple Dojo headquarters of what we did today live at Roots Chris, and that was Joshua chapter 10. We finished out the chapter. Last week we looked at the famous Sun Stand Still passage where God uh, helped Israel defeat this coalition of five uh, basically warlords that had come against Israel. And we talked about today when you're reading these accounts of the conquest and it says the king of so-and-so, the king of so-and-so. Keep in mind these were little city-states at best. These were typically, think of like like a, a, a big man in a village or a warlord of a region, you know, somewhere like Tajikistan or Afghanistan or some African nations where tribal warlords kind of run the show, even though there may be a, a, a larger governing body elsewhere. The, the level of engagement that we're dealing with during the conquest are these Canaanite warlords, these kings of places like Lachish or Eglon or Hebron or Jebus or any of these other locations. And so we saw that five of these had brought their armies together against the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites had allied with Israel very shrewdly, albeit somewhat dishonestly. And so these five Canaanite kings, instead of doing what the Gibeonites had done and making or trying to make peace with Israel, they instead have decided to attack Gibeon. Well, Israel being the vassal, excuse me, Israel being the suzerain of the Gibeonites, they entered into the treaty last week. And a good suzerain's job is to protect the vassal. And so Israel does that. Israel, um, as a good suzerain, comes to the aid of their vassal who are under attack, and they end up defeating this coalition of kings because God fights on their side. And he does so through a storm, through a hailstorm, which then poetically the author describes as the sun ceasing, or the sun standing still. And we talked about that last week, so without getting into all of the what does that passage entail, did the earth stop rotating, did the sun stop in the sky, is it just poetic, check the podcast last week if you want to hear that discussion. But the crucial fact to keep in mind theologically is these are Canaanites. Uh, this is a coalition of Canaanites who God is, think back to the Exodus, God used the elements of the gods of Egypt in each of the plagues. So each of the plagues against Egypt was was um, in the domain of one of the gods of Egypt and culminating with the death of the firstborn, which is uh, Pharaoh himself was seen as the firstborn of Ra, the sun god, which is why right before that there was total darkness, the blotting out of the sun. That's the main god of Egypt, Ra. So similarly, to have these Canaanite kings defeated in battle, not just by Israel pursuing them and, and chasing them and fighting after them, which they did, but also by the very elements themselves, by a storm, a hailstorm is what was defeated. Well, hailstorms, storms in general, storm is, that's, 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 that's Baal's domain. Baal is the storm god. And so for, once again, just like we saw in the Exodus, God is using the very elements that that the Canaanites believe their gods to control in order to exert his sovereignty and to, and to overthrow them and their armies, just like he did with Egypt. And so that's what he does. We said, uh, verse 16 reads, now the five kings had fled. So, so after the battle, and then, then the hailstorm came and rescued Israel and Israel's armies chased them. 
and, and won the battle. Now we're getting some recapitulation, uh, zooming in and talking more about the specifics of what followed that event. It says, now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave of Makeda, the kings, the warlords, the big men, the chiefs of these Canaanite city-states. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So the kings have fled from their armies to try to find safety in this cave at Makeda. So Joshua says, roll stones over there. We'll deal with them later. Stay on point. We've got to continue to wipe out the enemies, uh, the Canaanite armies that have come and uh, aligned themselves against the Gibeonites and against us. And God's given them into our hands. So stop them before they reach their fortified cities. Uh, and that's what they were. The cities at this time were fortified military installations. So <clears throat> Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But the few who were left reached their fortified cities. So a few made it back to their cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in camp at Makeda, and, uh, at Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. They're returning in victory, no one saying anything. They, they, God has given them overwhelming victory in this battle with these five kings against them. The Hebrew text literally says no one moved his tongue against the sons of Israel. In other words, nobody had anything to say, speaking of the, the people, the surrounding peoples. Verse 22, Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave, bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, and Eglon. These were the kings that had hatched this whole idea to attack. When they brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the neck of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. This is a sign of utter humiliation and utter defeat. Now, these are powerful warlords. These kings of these city-states were used to, uh, you don't become king of a Canaanite city-state by being a slouch. These were powerful people. Uh, these were people who had, just, just think of warlords. Think of mafia dons. Think of people who are used to being in control, being the big man, calling the shots. And Joshua has each of the Israelites who participated in this battle and come forward and put their foot on the neck. Just this symbolic, like, you have been destroyed. You are under my feet, which is an image that will be used even later in the New Testament when it talks about God putting everything under Jesus' feet when he returns to reign, uh, meaning Satan is totally defeated and overthrown. So think of the message that this sends to everybody seeing this. Is Think of the, the morale. Think of the message this sends to Israel as the army. Hey, we, we're, we're Israelites. We were born in the desert, raised on manna, came together in the desert as a, as a rabble of former slaves who've been uh, brought together as God's army, even without advanced weaponry or any military training. And we've just defeated these five Canaanite kings, warlords, who've, who've allied against us. Think what this does as each man is brought forward and puts his foot on the neck, is showing God's people, it's Joshua instilling morale in the people, saying, no, you are God's army. And because God's fighting on our side, this is a battle. This battle is the battle of God, not the battle of Israel. Then this is what will happen to those who oppose the God of Israel in this campaign that he's called us to wage. And so it's a, it's a huge morale boost for the people. But then Joshua is not done. 
Verse 25, Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies who were going to fight you. When Joshua struck and killed all the king, then Joshua, excuse me, then Joshua struck and killed all the kings and hung them on five trees. And they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they've been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. Back in Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who's hung from a tree. This was a means of showing someone under God's curse. And the Canaanite kings, these Canaanite warlords, were under the curse of God. And so in a visual display for everyone to see, Joshua has these kings hung up on these trees. Now this strikes us as violent and, and terrible because we're not a warlike culture. I mean, <laughs> I say that as American, we do, we do, put it this way, we're a sanitized from war culture. Our wars are all distant and over there and high tech and, and uh, we, not as visceral as this. So we're not used to this level of physical viscerality and violence. Um, but this is part for the course in the ancient Near East, in the world in which Joshua takes place. This was the norm. And there's some reason to it beyond just you would hang up somebody as a means of showing their utter contempt, they're cursed by the gods, they're humiliated, they're destroyed, and you desecrate their body. Uh, you don't give them a proper burial. All of these ways are, all these are ways of showing um, kind of like uh, vengeance even after death on someone. But God commanded in Torah that if anyone is hung on a tree, it can't be overnight. In other words, there can't, their bodies can't be left up there to rot and decay and the animals come and eat them and everything because that would desecrate the land. Like that's a bridge too far, even in the warring, uh, brutal ancient Near East. And so that's why they were cut down before sunset and, and buried in the cave. But there's a, a value to what Joshua does beyond just the bragging rights of look what happens to our enemies. Whenever, think back to recent times, like... Um, when, when Gaddafi, Libya, was overthrown, whatever you think of that politically, they, his body was paraded around or dragged around the streets. Or, or think of Saddam Hussein, you know, his, his execution was public and, and people saw it and it was broadcast. Um, whenever people, whenever these dictators or warlords are overthrown or defeated, whenever people who use fear to keep people in line are overthrown, there's a sense that among the people, we want to know that they're really gone. You know, in Rome, when Nero died, uh, there was a rumor that arose because his death wasn't as this public thing, apparently. There was a rumor that he didn't really die. It just appeared that way and that he actually had fled beyond the Euphrates to the Parthians and was building an army of Parthians and eventually was going to come back across the Euphrates with this vast number of horsemen from the Parthians and retake Rome. This is called the Nero Ritavivus myth. I might have mispronounced that. My Latin's rusty. But regardless, uh, Revelation alludes to this myth, and, and it was common. So there's a, because the Rome wasn't sure he was really dead, you know, was he really dead? In modern times, I mean, how many people think that Biggie and Tupac are still around because they haven't really seen that they're actually dead, and, you know, there's, or Elvis for a previous generation. There's a, there's a value in war settings to showing publicly these warlords are no more. This is not just, oh, we've heard reports that they're dead. No, they are dead. They are done. And this is the fate that awaits anyone who unites themselves against Yahweh and his covenant people at this stage in the land of Canaan. 
And so it's a powerful message that's sent just from a practical military standpoint. But their armies aren't done. These are the kings. The, the head's been cut off of the serpent, but the body is still writhing. And so the, Joshua is going to embark on what's called the southern campaign. That day, Joshua took Makeda. He put the city and its king to the sword, and he totally haremed everyone in it. And we've talked about what harem means. If you missed that, check previous podcasts. He left no survivors. He did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved from Makeda to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. He did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. You're going to hear this stock phrase over and over because this is recounting military victories of Joshua. So this these phrasing is going to be used. You're going to see a pattern here. And it's similar to patterns in other ancient Near East battle accounts that also use similarly hyperbolic language. We'll talk, get back to that in a minute. Verse 31, then Joshua and all Israel with him moved from Libna to Lachish. He took up positions against it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Gezer, had come up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. So even, even others coming in trying to help these cities that have been put under God's ban, under God's curse, uh, to no avail. Joshua's battle is victorious over them as well. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Lachish to Eglon. They took up position against it and attacked it. They captured it that same day and put it to the sword and totally haremed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just as Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Deborah. They took the city, its king, and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They harrowed. They left no survivors. They did to Deborah as its king had done to Libna and as its king, excuse me, they did to Deborah and its king as they had done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. So these five kings now, their city-states, their little fiefdoms, their, their fortified city and areas now have been uh, subdued. And, and all of the vestiges of Canaanite uh, culture, uh, structures, religious shrines, whatever, would have been destroyed in this process. That's the harem passage as well. All of the people. So in other words, it's a campaign uh, wiping out this entire southern region of the land of Canaan of the Canaanites that were under the ban. And verse 40 sums it up. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. Now, this is the language that we're talking about, hyperbolic language. He left no survivors. He haremed all breath. NIV says he totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. But the Hebrew doesn't say that. The Hebrew says he haremed, which we've talked about before, all breath. That's a that's a that's a figure of speech. That's hyperbolic. How can you how can you put to death all breath? How can you wipe out all breath? How can you offer up to God all breath? There's still going to be rats and mice in the field. There's still going to be birds in the area. There's still going to be animals that breathe. There's still it's a figure of speech. This whole section is filled, and 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 scholars have pointed this out. Um, Lawson Younger, I believe, is one of the scholars who's written extensively on this, has pointed out that 
the language that Josh was using is stock hyperbolic battle language because we're going to read about and it says he left no survivors but in in later chapters we're going to read about some of the survivors and what they did and in the book of judges it's going to flat out say they didn't drive everybody out there were survivors so what's going on contradiction well only if you press for wooden literalism what's actually happening is Joshua is using stock phrase to describe an utterly successful military campaign where they destroyed the Southern Coalition of Kings. It's like we would say in sports, oh, the Panthers, they got destroyed by the Falcons the other day. Did you see that game? We don't mean literally. We're using it hyperbolically. We're using it as a figure of speech. Scripture does that as well. And the conquest accounts do that as well. We know from Scripture itself that leave nothing alive that breathes doesn't literally mean that. We've already been given examples. Gibeonites were saved, even though they were Canaanites who should have been wiped out. Rahab, even though it says Jericho and all who were in it were destroyed. Rahab is an example and all who were in her household. So all doesn't always mean all, as we've stressed before. And in the conquest accounts, it's important to keep that in mind because that's what we're reading. Stylized accounts of utterly successful military campaigns. In this case, in the southern region of Canaan. The next chapter, they're going to turn and they're going to go north and there's going to be the northern campaign. But for right now, this is summarizing the southern campaign. Verse 41, Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Now, this one campaign, it presents it in half a chapter, but this would have taken weeks or maybe even months. This is a summarized account. I think older translations say Joshua captured them at one time or all at once or something like that. But then, no, this is a summarized account that's actually much more in-depth than this summary itself even gives. These campaigns took longer. There were were longer battles involved. There was more time. We're just getting the overview. And then it ends, verse 43, As the previous section in this chapter ended, the previous overview of the battle of Gibeon ended with, and Joshua returned with all Israel to camp at Gilgal, verse 15. Now we find that same, this lets us know that we've been recapitulating, we've been seeing the details in more detail of what was described in the previous section, and now it bookends it again with, then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. So this whole section is is an account of God fighting for Israel as Israel fulfills what God's commanded them to do through the covenant, which is to drive out the particular peoples of Canaan. And God promised that these Canaanites, remember, think back to the Exodus, think back to Numbers when the spies went in this land. These people's parents, they saw the land, the spies, and they said, there's no way we can beat these people. They're giant. We're like grasshoppers before them. There's no way we can, their cities are fortified into the heavens. There's no way we can win. And now in Joshua, in the book of Jesus, remember Jesus, Joshua, same word in Greek and Hebrew, just not in English because English is weird. Uh, But in this book, Jesus 1.0, they are driving out the Canaanites. They are having victory over these mighty warlord kings. They are destroying these fortified cities with towers with walls up to the heavens or however they were described. The point is that they're doing it and God's the one who
who is allowing them to do it because they're remaining faithful to the covenant. As long as Israel's faithful to the covenant, God upholds his end, which is fighting these battles for Israel. So these are really Yahweh's wars, not Israel's wars. And they're wars against the particular peoples of Canaan that God had commanded 400 years before in Genesis 15 to Abram. Hey, by the time the sin of these peoples, the Amorites, has reached its full measure, that's the time that I'm going to bring your descendant, your yeah, your offspring into the land to enact judgment on them. Israel is the flood, if you want to use that language. Just like the flood God sent in Genesis to cleanse the land of its violence and corruption and evil and wickedness. Now, he promised he'd never flood the earth again. Now, instead of using flood, he's using Israel to flood the land of Canaan in judgment and drive out and cleanse the land of its of, of Canaanite idolatry and the Canaanite wickedness and the practices that were enumerated throughout Leviticus 18 and other places that God was saying, this is the evil that I'm judging these people for. Things like wanton violence, things like... Um, child sacrifice, things like orgiastic worship, all of these practices that are utterly abhorrent in any culture had reached their full measure with the Canaanites. And so now, like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plains with fire, like he did with the earth during the days of Noah with the flood, now in Canaan, he's doing the same thing, but he's doing it with the armies led by Joshua. And that's a foreshadowing because he'll do it again. When Israel becomes as corrupt as the Canaanites, when Israel becomes Canaanites, He's going to do it again, but the flood will be in the form of Assyria. And then the flood will be in the form of Babylon. And then the flood will be in the form of Greece and then Rome until finally the Messiah appears. And then Jesus' own teaching talks about him returning in judgment. So Jesus, Joshua 2.0, is one day going to return in judgment. And just like Joshua 1.0 is going to drive out of God's land all vestiges of evil. Only it's going to be a cosmic scale and it's going to be spiritual evil and it's going to be the root of everything that the Canaanites were just a symptom of. So that's the recap for this week, Joshua 10. Uh, we'll see you hopefully back next week live with some working audio and you can get the feel back at Ruth's Chris again. But this was just to keep everybody uh, moving along in our study. So have a great week, Joshua 11. We'll see you next week.